Great, I think we'll get started then. Wonderful. Um, I begin tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm currently situated, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to the First Nations elders, past, present and emerging. I invite you all to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land you are currently situated on. If you are unaware of who the traditional owners of your area are, I encourage you to undertake research and learn about the Indigenous history of your area. I acknowledge that First Nations people are the rightful owners of the island we call Australia and that sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome everyone, my name is Binari and I'm the careers officer of the PLN this year. I'd like to quickly do some introductions and thank yous before we get started. Um, so really quickly, a huge thank you to the careers subcommittee who have helped organize this event, Alana, Anika, Ella, Philip and Sarah. I'd also like to thank Janice Hugo from the Caston Centre for helping pull this event together and Maria O'Sullivan for volunteering to moderate this event. And of course, thank you to our panellists for agreeing to join us for this insightful discussion tonight. In terms of how the event will run tonight, we'll have a moderated discussion for the majority of the event and then some time at the end for a Q&A. So please put your questions into the Q&A chat and we'll try to get through all of them, um, but we'll see how we go for time. Uh, so with all that said, I'll now pass it over to Maria to get started. Welcome everyone. I'm very honoured to be moderating this panel. So first of all, I'm going to introduce uh, Tanya Sinas. Tanya is a graduate lawyer and in the early stages of her legal career, She's currently working as an associate to the president of the Queensland Court of Appeal. Tanya chose to study law because she knew she wanted to work in the public interest area and directly help people in some way. She is from a migrant and state school background and did not have any legal connections growing up. This has shaped her legal career in a unique way. So welcome, Tanya. Would you like to make your contribution? Thank you, Maria. And uh, thank you, Benari. And Progressive Law Network for um, inviting me to be a part of this event. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that I um, speak from Yagara and Turbul country here in Mianjin in Brisbane and pay my respects to the original uh, sovereign lawmakers and law officers of this place, um, recognising that as settler lawyers, um, we must actively use our privilege to uh, resist and dismantle the project of colonisation, which our laws further. Um, I remember when Progressive Law Network actually first started up as a Facebook group. Um, I think I was in the last years of my university degree and I was like, oh, there's a, there's a group of progressive law students who wanna do public interest stuff, that's so cool. Um, I found law school really um, isolating because um, most fellow, my peers, um, I think a lot of us go into law school with very idealistic notions of wanting to do good and changing the world and all this. Um, but then law school kind of siphons us off into the commercial sphere. And, and unfortunately, the job market is dominated by commercial, um, commercial roles. So at some point, we kind of lose that idealism and we lose that sight because it doesn't seem like it's possible to do... Um, to have a public interest uh, law career. So I found it quite difficult and I didn't really um, think that I would end up practicing as a lawyer or get admitted. Um, and it was, it took me a few years after graduating, um, doing various things. I was working in hospitality. Um, I was working in a meat packing factory, did a bit of research. 
um, and also trying to volunteer at CLCs, um, which I found um, was kind of the only place where I could um, do the kind of work that I, you know, really came to law school to do. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's been, for me, I've definitely found it difficult um, to kind of get a foot in the door, um, but there have been um, some really nice surprises along the way and um, the people that you meet, I think, as well, and we'll hopefully talk more about those strategies that you can um, uh, apply when, when trying to build a public interest legal career. Um, but I did my, my practical legal training at the Kimberley Community Legal Ser Service in Broome, um, which was amazing and really changed, um, kind of really did change my perspective on, on what a lawyer could look like. Um, and I came back to Brisbane, um, started working at the Fair Work Ombudsman as a, a, a frontline workplace advisor. And I um, got this associateship this year, which has really um, opened doors for me and has really um, helped me build my legal skills as well. Um, so, that's kind of where I'm at, but um, yeah, I look forward to the discussions we have today on, um, on all that. Thank you so much, Tanya. Uh, now I'm going to pass over to Joseph. So Joseph Kelly has extensive experience in workplace law, having advised employers and employees on all sorts of issues relating to industrial relations and employment law. He's been awarded and listed on the Doyle's Guide Leading Victorian Employment Lawyer for four years running. And Joseph has advised industry bodies, unions, employers and government and continues to run information sessions for legal practitioners. He's an experienced advocate having appeared before state and federal courts and tribunals. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you very much. Thank you for the introduction. Um, I'm not going to try and uh, differentiate myself from Tanya, but um, using that as the base about uh, our pathways, I suppose, into the law. Um, uh, I came from a, a large Irish Catholic family. Uh, they arrived in Australia the year I was born. Um, I have an older brother who uh, is 10 years older than me and he, um, uh, he's a lawyer. He works in. He's a criminal lawyer. He spent a lot of time in Broome as well. Um, probably crossed paths with a lot of the people Tanya worked with. Um, uh, and I also have an older sister who, likewise, um, has uh, is a criminal lawyer who spent uh, a lot of time in Kalgoorlie, um, uh, working for the Aboriginal Legal Service there. So I suppose I, I had pioneers within my own family that I could follow. Um, my pathway was when I finished year 12, um, I, I formed, you know, I had that, that idealistic view that, uh, uh, that university was a bourgeois institution and I was going to try and um, uh, uh, shape a life for myself sort of different, uh, in a different mould to all of my, I suppose, older siblings and, and peers. But um, I suppose after about, I think it was four years of drifting around, doing odd jobs and traveling Australia and, and the globe, um, I decided to uh, go to university and I did a, uh, an honors degree in literature. Um, I did my thesis on um, 
on uh, the German post-war writer Heinrich Boll because he, he had this, um, this ideal about the possibility of creating a utopia. He saw that after um, the defeat of the Nazis in World War II and before the Allies uh, and the Russians had come into Germany, there was this brief period of a vacuum where there was no central government. Um, and he believed that it was possible to build um, a society based on, um, I suppose, a form of tribalism, but with really with art at its centre. And, um, and, I, and so I studied that, but uh, ultimately I wasn't able to build my own utopia. And, uh, and then I had to think about um, the very uh, real realities of uh, paying bills and all the rest of it. And so that's when I thought I'd, I'd give uh, being a lawyer a shot. Um, and while I was studying, I worked for a, uh, a criminal law practice as well as working in-house uh, as an, uh, for an employment um, recruitment company. And uh, when I finished university, I found myself working for a small commercial firm in the city um, uh, doing employment work, a little bit of it. Uh, but mainly commercial litigation and um, a lot of financing work. Um, and after about three and a half years of that, I realised that I was not the uh, suited to the commercial law lawyer's life. Um, and so I actually made a phone call to somebody who I went to university with who had, um, after his law degree, had had got a job working for a union as an industrial officer um, and I asked him whether there were you know he knew he had a, a lead into any work and I found myself then as um, uh, I had a snazzy title uh, national legal officer for the engineers union and I spent about six years there six and a half years very very happy years uh, no no billable units, and all you did was uh, help people. They would call in and you would help them. Um, uh, and I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. They were great years, and I did a lot of great work, um, meaning I got a lot of great experience. Um, but the problem is, uh, when you find yourself sitting at a desk doing a job and you do it well, um, there's the Peter principle where people want to promote you into roles where maybe uh, you shouldn't be. And I, I didn't want to run a union. That wasn't my ideal. I enjoyed just sitting in my office and, uh, uh, and helping people. So ultimately, uh, I felt that I should um, move on and find somewhere else to go. And I know I didn't want to go back to timesheets. Uh, and so... Um, I spoke to my boss at the time and he said, well, we can get you an office in a trades hall and you can see how you go from there. And that's what happened. That was 11 years ago. And so I now hire um, two other lawyers and then we have a revolving door of support staff. Um, and our work is primarily um, assisting employees. We do a lot of discrimination based work um, and it's work that we're all very proud of. Um, so uh, I suppose that's the pathway then to, to, to trying to find a way, find your space when you know you want to be somewhere and you want to do something that um, 
uh, in the public interest law, you, you do have to be a bit dogged about it and decide that um, you've either got to carve it out for yourself or you've just got to keep searching and finding and you've got to use your networks. You've got to ring whoever you know. Um, don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Uh, people will never know what you need unless you ask them. But um, uh, I suppose those are the best words of wisdom I can give us on, on, on that topic. Thank you. Thanks so much, Joseph. I'm going to call on Liam in a moment, but if I could just um, make a small contribution, because I'm in the human rights area, I have interned at the UN and I know this is an issue. Um, firstly, you know, a lot of students say to me, can I work in a commercial law, law firm before I go on to the UN or, or go into human rights? And my uh, advice would be, it's always good to get experience either in drafting documents in the commercial field or in litigation, because that is core legal, they are core legal skills that you will utilise later on. Um, and then we can also talk later if, if students, you want to ask me questions or the, the, the panel questions about volunteering and interning. Um, so I'm now going to uh, welcome my dear colleague, Liam, Liam Elphick. Liam is an associate lecturer at Monash University. Liam's advocacy and research specialises in LGBTQIA discrimination law and how that intersects with religious freedom. He sits on the Victorian Pride Lobby Committee and the City of Stonington Council LGBTQIA Advisory Committee. After realising that the corporate law path was not for him, Liam wanted to pursue a job where he would be able to follow his passions. And Liam has a strong passion for legal education and making sure students are aware of and can pursue their career paths outside the big law firms. So very warm welcome to Liam. Thanks, Maria. Thanks so much, everyone, um, for having me today. Uh, so I thought I might speak briefly, much like Tanya and Joseph did about my pathway. And then because I'm still a teacher at heart, I did have a couple of sort of words of wisdom that I've um, set out that I just want to impart at this stage. And then I'll happily take any questions later on. So like Maria said, I'm a lecturer at Monash at the moment. Um, I started at Monash at the start of this year. So quite fresh faced at Monash. Uh, I'm from Perth, so I completed my law degree at the University of Western Australia alongside my arts degree where I majored in politics and international relations at the time. Uh, and once I left law school, I uh, spent a year as an associate to the Chief Justice of the WA Supreme Court and then returned to UWA the next year as an associate lecturer um, in a similar role to what I have at Monash. So I did that for two years before moving to Melbourne. Uh, starting my PhD a couple of years ago, um, working as a casual teacher at La Trobe, and then taking up this position at Monash this year. So that's just a little bit by way of background, but what I really wanted to talk about is just some of the lessons I've learned along that journey and, and ways in which that might be able to help all of you in your own journeys over the next few years, indeed maybe decades, as Joseph says, we're all still sort of <laughs> finding our own path through that, that process uh, long after we've left law school. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is exploring your passions and the opportunities that you have through your passions in your law degree. So my first opportunity uh, in my degree to actually pursue something I suppose I wanted to do at the time was through uh, an arts internship program, which is not overly dissimilar to the, the Monash clinical guarantee, except it was about probably one one hundredth of the size. But the point was that you get allocated to certain um, certain organisations, particularly in the public sector, to have an experience of that. And so I was uh, allocated to the United States Consulate General in Perth, so sort of the, the subset of the US Embassy 
in Australia, but uh, based in Perth. And um, that was really my first experience of an office, my first experience of um, a professional environment. Even coming to uni, I was the first person in my entire family, my extended family, who went to uni uh, at any stage. My dad likes to say that he was, but he enrolled in a commerce degree, never attended a class, went surfing in Queensland for a year instead, and then unenrolled, but he thinks he's number one. Uh, I claim it's definitely me. So uh, not only was university quite uh, rare and unique for me and my family, but also that sort of professional office environment. And I just absolutely loved that experience. I loved being involved in the public sector. I loved being involved in sort of uh, the policy discussions that were happening at the time. Not that as a 20-year-old, I was contributing too much to, you know, US policy in Australia. But it was great to be part of those discussions and um, to come across the people that we came across. So the US ambassador, uh, the Secretary of State at the time, which was Hillary Clinton, came and talked to us um, while she was here for uh, the the secretary of state meetings so that was my real first experience and i loved it so i thought i really want to sort of pursue this more and that led me later in my degree to apply for an internship at the western australian ombudsman which i also loved and to think about other public service work that i wanted to do and alongside that when i was at uwa i had the opportunity quite early in my law degree to when i'd finished my arts degree to teach into the undergraduate arts program so i was able to do some sessional teaching for a couple of years and from that to also do some research assistant work for some academics i'd worked with and i absolutely love that experience i found that i love teaching i love the idea of research i love the idea of exploration and and how you can sort of condense that and then explain that to other people and so I wanted more of that. And then that in turn led me to apply for our law review student editorial position, which is very similar to the Monash one, as well as doing my honours thesis at UWA. And all of that really just made me realise that I loved research, I loved learning, I loved teaching, I wanted to continue that work moving forward. And I suppose by contrast, um, in terms of the opposite of exploring your passions, what I didn't really love throughout my law degree were the experiences I had in firms that I put myself out for. So I thought quite early on in my degree that uh, being a practicing lawyer was probably not for me. And that turned out to be very much true, but I decided that I needed to prove that to myself about five or six times for some reason that's still beyond me. Uh, and I kept thinking, oh, well, if I just go to this size firm instead of this size firm, I'll like that. Or if I just try this area of law instead of that area of law, I'll like that. Or if I go on this street in the city instead of that street in the city, I'm sure I'll much prefer that firm. And no, pretty much uniformly every single minute I didn't like, and it just wasn't really for me. And even to an extent, I mean, there were many parts of my associateship that I enjoyed, but also many parts that I didn't, and it didn't feel like it was the right pathway for me. I learned a lot from it, but it wasn't really where I wanted to go. So I think exploring your passions and the opportunities you have in your law degree is really important and listening to what your brain, perhaps sometimes your body as well, says about what you're enjoying and what you're not enjoying. The second point I wanted to make is that it's not all about law, which is a bit of a weird thing to say at a, at a talk about law careers. But for me, it's about what you're trying to do with your law degree rather than trying to sort of um, squeeze that, that law degree into a legal career that you may not be looking for or, or wanting. And to me, it was about what community I was seeking to contribute to or assist. And as a gay man, LGBTIQ advocacy was sort of the more logical thing that I was always interested in. It wasn't something I was involved in until the marriage equality postal vote, that incredibly fun year in 2017, where the entire country debated my rights and the rights of everyone around me to have um, the same rights as other people already did have. 
and that's really what brought me out of my shell and going, this is, this is something I need to do. Like, this is something I need to contribute to. This is something I need to work on. This is something that inspires me and drives me and, and um, something that I feel a calling for. And I suppose my work at that stage around marriage equality was really just trying to convince UWA Law School at the time to make a statement about marriage equality, trying to get people on board, trying to do basic volunteer things. But what it led to was me thinking about how I could apply the knowledge and skills I had to help improve LGBTIQ rights. Um, and that's what led to my interest in discrimination law and my passion for that and how to use that to achieve better equality outcomes for queer people in Australia. So thinking not just about law, but about what you're trying to do with your law degree and other areas in which you can contribute. So in addition to this for me, um, I was also a part-time AFL scout throughout my law degree for about eight or nine years in Perth for Port Adelaide. Um, so obviously every good player at Port Adelaide you can give me credit for and every time we lose a preliminary final you can blame someone else. Uh, so that, that was something as well that had nothing to do with my law degree at all. Like it's just it, totally irrelevant to my law degree and, and something that was a different passion of mine but that which later led to something really important for me. And that was my passion for an interest in sports law and particularly combining my interest in sports law with my LGBTIQ advocacy to do things like chairing an organization, uh, Proud to Play, which is involved in LGBTI inclusion in sport and working on a paper on transgender athletes and their rights um, under discrimination law and the exclusion that they're facing uh, in many competitions at the moment. So. I'll always look fondly at my time in the AFL, regardless of the fact that it led to other things. But it's amazing how when you just follow your interests, even if they're way outside of law, they can often circle back to something that leads to something else. And that might have been the case if I ended up becoming a full-time AFL scout instead of going into a legal academic career too. It's still an important uh, career choice, whatever you choose to do with that. So what I would say about this area is that whatever jobs you might have, whatever casual jobs, part-time jobs, interests, volunteering you might have along the way, don't think that everything has to be, you know, community legal centre, law firm, um, you know, even the UN, for instance, as Maria said, you can, you can pursue so many other interests, even if it's being a treasurer of a netball team, you know, a floor manager at a, um, at a store, whatever it might be, there are so many things that you should still um, feel interested in pursuing, not everything has to be about law. The third point I was going to make is just to surround yourself with your people, people you trust and people you look up to and who you aspire to be. It's always a good sign when you work with people on a daily basis or a weekly basis who you enjoy and who you actually want to be working with. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean that every single day I work with people that I want to work with. Maria, I always want to work with you, just to clarify. Uh, but obviously, sometimes we have people that we don't want to deal with in every job, in every role. And um, particularly for Maria and me, whenever we do some media, we get some very kind-hearted comments from members of the community that we might not be looking forward to otherwise. But if on a, if on a general basis you're working uh, with people who you want to be working with, that's a really good sign. So for me in law school, I looked up to my teachers so much. I, I was so lucky to have the best teachers imaginable who I still aspire to be in so many ways and who I learned so much from. Um, interestingly, like my torts teacher was my favourite teacher and that's the unit I now teach at Monash. And I don't think that's coincidental that I had an interest in that because of how she taught that unit and how much I looked up to her. So once I was surrounded by that at law school, I knew that's what I wanted to continue doing. That's who I wanted to be around. And the same with my LGBTIQ advocacy work. When you're at those organisations doing that important work that feels rewarding with people who get you and people who you look up to, it's always a good sign that you're in the right place. And the final thing I wanted to say, because I've taken up more than enough time, 
is to run your own race. So to follow your own path and your own values and, and to use your values to shape the outcomes you want. So sometimes we can go, oh, I want the corporate law career because it's the easiest thing possible because I know what the application process is. I know this firm takes 25 um, grads each year following you know, 80 in the clerkship pool in the previous year. I know how it all works. It's pretty simple. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's, if that's the path you want to take in simplicity and sort of structure and process and that all makes complete sense to you. I've never begrudged anyone for taking that path. What I would say is just thinking about the values you want to use to shape those outcomes and the paths you want. So for me, what's always been really important to me is being unique, contributing to um, what I consider to be bigger, big picture societal goals and having autonomy, independence and ability to be self-driven to sort of pursue those passions and goals. And that's what led me towards academia as, as, as one of the more logical places to do so many of those things. Someone who has different values would go in a totally different direction. I think, you know, Joseph, Tanya and Flo, we all would have different values that contribute to the decisions we've made. So take advice from people, including us maybe, but don't assume what others say is what you should do. You have your own values, you have your own experiences and, and draw from that as best you can and run your own race. So I think I've taken up more than enough time, Maria, but uh, I'm more than happy to take any questions uh, after we get through this section as well. That's fantastic. Thank you, Liam. And there's a bit of a, I guess, a, a link between yourself and Tanya because you were, oh, uh, Tanya is a, a judge's associate. No, I was too. That was my first job. And I would say to students that that's quite a good way because it's normally just for a year or two to get experience of litigation, even if you don't go on to do that. And that served me well, both as a lecturer and, and in human rights work. Um, and the other thing I'd like to note is, yeah, the idea of getting volunteer work, say at Amnesty International, if you can't do human rights work, at least offer to, you know, run their blog or do something on their internet to, you know, do communications. It doesn't have to be legal, as, as Liam said, because some of these internal volunteer jobs can be highly sought after. So last but not least, I'd like to introduce Fleur Ramsey. Fleur is the special counsel for the International Program at the Environmental Defenders Office in Sydney. She partners with local organisations to protect the environment and the human rights of Indigenous peoples and local communities in the Pacific. Fleur is an expert in Indigenous rights and in international environmental law and is an experienced litigator. Apart from Fleur's domestic and international experience, she is also Samoan and brings a personal understanding of the Pacific. Thank you, Fleur. Thanks. Um, so I think I'm going to talk about um, my path and, and law in a little bit of a different way. And mainly I want to talk about why you should consider environmental law as a um, progressive career choice. And the reason why I wanted to talk about it is I think that a lot of people don't quite understand what environmental law is and yet it probably actually is about to become one of the more important areas of practice and law, um, particularly because we're in a biodiversity and a climate crisis and a human rights crisis as well. Um, and so how I got to environmental law is a kind of interesting story in itself because I actually always wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And like um, Tanya, I didn't know any lawyers. I kind of actually, at the age of 15, in the top tuck shop line, decided I wanted to be a lawyer and then tried to convince everyone around me that I could do it. And I was failing at school. 
Um, so I was told that law was not for me. Um, and obviously I didn't listen to anyone, which I'm really happy um, that that was the case. But when I got to law school, I actually found environmental law and the way it was taught really boring. Um, it didn't speak to me at all. Uh, and I think mainly because environmental law in Australia is a little bit underdeveloped. It's not about protecting species, it's really about um, planning law and development. And so I ended up um, moving my interests to the rights of Indigenous peoples. And I did every kind of course that I could on looking at settler colonial law, um, looking at um, the human rights of Indigenous peoples um, and, you know, sustainability from, from that perspective. And I found it much more interesting and actually found that Indigenous people were at that point talking about environmental law in a really different way as connected to us um, as living beings um, in relation to a healthy environment, in relation um, to sustainability, in relationship to relationships to other species and to land. Um, that said, I also, because I came from a background where I wasn't meant to be a lawyer, um, I did have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and I wanted to prove myself um, in law. And so I ended up becoming an associate at the federal court. I was a researcher first, then an associate um, to a judge. And then because of that, um, which is why I encourage um, people to be associates, doors open for you. Um, and so then I ended up at Allen's. Uh, but the funny thing is, they offered me um, a position in the environment group without me even asking. Uh, and I'm really happy that that happened because I got to kind of, in, in some ways, because of course, when you're working at a commercial law firm, you, you're not actually protecting the environment, you're developing it and, and destroying it um, in some ways. And uh, I think that it was important for me to go because they were invested in developing me as a lawyer, but also invested in my labour. Um, and so there was a balance that I that I had to have. And also, ultimately, I left because I knew um, that it wasn't for me and it wasn't satisfying um, my soul. But because I also wanted to continue to prove myself, I ended up as a barrister for six years. <laughs> Um, and did a number of different, you know, I loved it actually in some ways. Uh, I sued the police, which was great. I have a 100% strike rate against them, um, 15 cases. I worked for the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. They sent me out to country to work with Indigenous people on consumer rights. Uh, and I also did environmental law and then I did some general commercial law and some admin law and some human rights as well. But I did not like the bar because it's a very, 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 very conservative um, environment. And I, you know, there's something about the bar which is very strange. Because you work for yourself, you tend to become very isolated. And rather than looking outwards and going, well, oh, here's some people that I can kind of connect with, um, I just felt that it wasn't for me. And so I ended up leaving. Um, and then I decided, okay, I want to be an environmental lawyer again, and I'm I'm going to go to Earth Justice in the US, and I went there for a year. 
And I'm really happy that I did that um, because that's when I started to really delve into um, the rights of Indigenous peoples in the environment context. And um, it really kind of opened my mind around what environmental law could be. And so I'm just going to give you a sense of some of the work um, that I do in the international program because I think it's really um, exciting work. So um, we work in Papua New Guinea protecting, helping customary landowners protect their land from illegal logging. Um, and Papua New Guinea's got the third largest rainforest in the world. It's a really important place and it's an important place for the customary landowners. Um, and the great thing is that we've got a human rights strategy there. We use the constitution. So we're also human rights lawyers um, and Indigenous rights lawyers. Uh, obviously, climate change is a really big issue for the Pacific. We're looking at litigation um, strategies there and there's some interesting cases in the pipeline. You might have heard that Vanuatu is looking um, to ask the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion on the obligation of states to, to current and future generations in relation to climate change. Um, we'll be involved in that and so we're also international lawyers. Uh, and the other thing which I think is pretty amazing and where I think environmental law is also going uh, is working outside the framework of state law and looking at customary law or first law. So in the Pacific, we've got a, a Sepik River strategy, beautiful, um, incredible river um, there with a, where it's under threat. And so we actually have a customary law rights of nature strategy in relation to that river. Um, and hopefully you'll hear more about that at some point. But as, as lawyers, we're customary lawyers doing customary environmental law as well. So in some senses, um, I am glad that it took a little bit of this long route to get um, to environmental law. I think um, being a barrister made me a better lawyer. I just have to say that that's the case, even though I found it um, extreme, like the atmosphere a little bit suffocating. Um, I've been lucky as well because I've managed to pick up some amazing mentors along the way. Um, and, you know, there are people out there who are willing to give their time and mentor you. And I, I think like as lawyers, keep an eye on that. I agree also with the follow your passion. Like if you ask me, do I love my job? Yeah, I love my job. One caveat, uh, if you come from a poor background and a lot of First Nations people and Pacific people do, uh, you should also consider how you're gonna eat because um, the community legal sector doesn't pay well. Um, I think, the best thing that happened to my organisation is that um, we lost all our government funding. We're now funded by philanthropists. So actually our, our salaries are going up. And in Earth Justice, for example, that I worked with in the US, that's a 100 million a year organisation in donations. And so they pay well. So there are opportunities for that. But I do think, um, think about, you know, because we have obligations to family. So think about that. First, maybe set yourself up and then do what you love, but also don't be afraid to just come and work in this area because there are, you can progress in it as well. Um, and if you start early on, then you can get to the, to these other um, higher levels and, you know, 
be remunerated well and also do something you love. So there's a few things to think about there, but um, I just wanted to kind of convince you that um, environmental law is really fascinating area and um, we need um, lawyers, particularly from different backgrounds to, to come to be environmental lawyers. Thank you. Thank you, Fleur. That was really fascinating. So thanks, everyone, for those introductory comments. So for those for, for people in the audience, what we're going to do now is have a moderated discussion with some questions we've already thought about. I'll do general questions with the panel and then some specific ones, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. So uh, students you and participants, you can put the, the questions in the Q&A form there. So I'd just like to, I guess, reflect upon what Fleur just said at the, the end, and this is reflected in some of the, the set questions we have for the panel. What do we do about the fact that, I guess, in a sense, law firms are more stable and um, offer more remuneration than public sector jobs? And also, I think we need to address the fact that if we volunteer or intern, it's normally on an unpaid basis. Now, this is a contested issue in the UN, by the way. There's a real pushback at least for the UN about um, requiring unpaid uh, internships. So just for those who are not aware, if you do want to go for a UN job, the past practice has been you're not really required, but the way to get in is to do an unpaid internship. And I have friends who have actually saved up, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to enable them to do that. Sometimes it's for six months. So I had a friend go off to The Hague to intern at the International Criminal Court uh, and it cost a lot of money. This was in the news a couple of years ago because there was an intern literally in The Hague, which is cold, living in a tent for three months to enable him to do the internship. So I do want to speak to the truth of the fact that, um, yeah, there is sometimes a requirement to do unpaid work and, and how we need to address that. So just on the issue of the remuneration and what Flo was talking about in terms of... Um, sort of unpaid work or, or stability. Uh, Liam, would you like to talk to that first and then Tanya and Joseph? Yeah, sure. I mean, it is just a difficult point, right? That as I think I flagged it before that there is greater stability in a lot of ways in some of those traditional careers. What I would say is maybe don't mistake um, stability and clear pathways for an absence of clear pathways elsewhere. I think about the public sector as one fairly obvious example whereby there are a lot of clear pathways into various different departments, be it um, at the state government level or at the federal level. A lot of jobs going, you know, on a common basis and the Victorian government, especially in the last 18 months, has grown significantly because of the pandemic and that's likely to continue for a little bit at least. So I think, first of all, there are other, you know, there are other options out there that are still stable, still have that solid income at the starting point. The difference, of course, in a lot of those careers and academia is, is most likely the same is that um, incomes in the early years are actually pretty similar, um, if not higher in some instances. It's just that, that that cap, that ceiling you have is going to be a lot higher in certain uh, commercial fields than it will be in other fields. If, if what you want is to earn the most money possible, then you're probably not going to follow my path. Like that's just the reality of, of the path that we've taken. But I think if, if your concern is living sort of comfortably or having comfortable salaries, that doesn't have to be as much of a concern in, the, in the, any of the areas any of us have talked about. You can still earn very good salaries and incomes and, and have stable careers in those areas. The other side of things um, in terms of stability is, is just thinking about um, what you want down the track beyond what you want the day you leave law school. So 
the day you leave law school, it might look like the simplest path, for instance, to have yeah a grad job at Allen's, I think, you know, for like, for instance, or something like that. And for a lot of people, that is the most stable thing. Doesn't mean it's the thing you want two years, three years, four years, five years down the track. And, you know, the easily the majority of my friends who went to law firms when they finished law school, when I finished my degree in 2016, have now left those firms and they've gone to different roles, be it in-house or different, you know, different fields. So just think as well not just about what you want on day one but what you want down the track and whether there's stability elsewhere that might get you longer term goals thanks lane yeah so um i think you know sometimes when people think of the public sector or non-commercial they might think of civil society like refugee legal amnesty international and um so yeah what liam is saying is you know say victoria you can be an advisor in victoria parliament you can work at either the federal or the victorian or any other state um equal opportunity commission and do important anti-discrimination work and, and the, the balance there between remuneration and stability is there so tanya did you have any comments to make on that issue um i i second that i think government's actually an untapped source of um potential experience that law students can gain um, while they were while they're studying um, and there's not as much you're not as um, dependent on the market um, as perhaps commercial jobs may be um, so that's also something to keep in mind um, I, I do second that there is a class issue with um, uh, the public interest sector and the community sector um, there is a clear um, a hurdle to cross if you can't afford not to um, gain an income you're you're not going to volunteer you're not going to go to the UN you're not going to go to Switzerland or the Hague um, so I think the onus then and I'm really glad to see that the interns in the United Nations have been pushing this um, the onus does fall on these big organizations to provide bursaries to provide scholarships to students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds I think that needs to be pushed forward. And honestly, I don't think, I don't think anyone should be doing work for free. I, 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 it's 2021. Um, as law students, you have incredible knowledge and skills. You're gaining so much from your studies. Um, and I think you should be properly remunerated for that. Um, so that's, that's my, my opinion on that. Thank you so much, Tanya. Joseph, did you have any comments on that issue? Uh, yeah, look, I suppose uh, all I would say is um, uh, I think, as Liam was saying, if you, if you try and think a bit broader about what you ultimately want to do, you can look at other ways to get there. So in my area, uh, in employment law, um, there's always work with unions doing industrial work. You don't have to be called a lawyer. You can be an industrial officer and that. And, and, and that can give you a great grounding and experience in um, meeting people and assisting them and problem solving and using the act and understanding how that works. And there's advocacy that you can do at the Fair Work Commission, which is the tribunal work. Um, so there are alternative pathways, you know, and you can still earn a living while you do it. I agree 100% um, that you, with Tanya, that you just should not be working for free. Um, and then the only other thing I'd say is, um, like Fleur was saying, um, litigation is a very important tool. Um, if, you, if you really want to... Um, 
you know, there are plenty of ways to affect change. So academia is one and you put pressure on there. But the work you can do in a court or a tribunal is, is a very strong, powerful tool. Um, and a lot of people um, uh, tend to shy away from litigation. I think they find it a bit maybe aggressive and um, find the process fairly adversarial and, and, and it's not attractive to them. If you are attracted to it, um, like I am, and obviously Fleur is, um, the the going to a, a, a well-resourced firm that is going to give you good mentors and um, good access to resources is a wonderful way to start because there's nothing worse than, especially in the union movement, what you see sometimes is um, they can push people a little bit maybe too early into some of these advocacy roles and maybe you get a bit gun shy. Um, but being in a position where you're properly resourced and mentored and then you're able to really develop those skills um, holds you in really good stead. And then, so you're going to earn uh, a good income while you're there, um, working up the ladder. And then you just have to be, you have to back yourself and trust yourself. There's a bit of that leaping off the tight right when you say well look uh, because everyone around you when you work in the law firm it's easy to peg yourself to them and their success and you watch them and you think well if I do this much time I can become a senior associate and then I can become partner and then I can have this house and this investment property and you get a very you can very easily get a very warped sense of um success, I suppose, and a warped sense of your value. Um, and so there, it, there is a bit of courage in saying, well, um, and strength in your commitment to say that that isn't what is of interest to me. Um, and I'm going to pursue where the interest is. Um, uh, I know for myself, you know, I, I've my partner worked, she's um, uh, uh, an environmental planner. She works for Jesuit Social Services. So this idea of, um, you know, the public good is always very strong. So it was always good to have somebody supportive where you could say, um, well, this isn't about the money. We're going to actually try and do something very different. And we're going to look at a different pathway that actually makes us happy. Um, so I suppose uh, on that, if you, if you value happiness, I reckon that there is a massive value in that financially. I wouldn't change a single thing in my life. I would choose happiness over money every day of the week. But um, certainly that concept of going to uh, allowing somebody else to put the resources in to help you develop your skills and then moving on and using those skills for what you want to achieve is, is, a, is a good pathway. Fleur, you'd probably agree. Um, yeah, how about you, Claire? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there are different kind of opportunities available um, if you do come from a poor background, you know, and, and uh, some lawyers do, um, you know, uh, commercial firms have pro bono lawyers. <laughs> so you get paid a, a commercial rate to do actually some really good work um, in the community. And the other thing is... Well, it's been my philosophy, which is, you know, which has been guided by my life where I'm like, okay, so I'm going to change things. And so maybe, um, you know, and I'm already seeing this with funders, but making the argument for funders for having fellowships um, or equity scholarships for people to be able to come in from 
different backgrounds. So they can be environmental lawyers because um, they've got a lot to offer, for example. And um, unfortunately, environmental law firms have been a very, uh, very white organisations. Um, historically, they don't, like my organisation doesn't reflect the Australian demographics. Um, and so we have to think really creatively as organisations, particularly as we grow and have wealth of ways of creating pathways for different peoples to come into the organisation. So I'd love to see equity scholarships based on class and then First Nations, for example. Thank you. Now, I'm going to get to networking in terms of getting a foot on the door, but I just wanted to make two comments. I would agree that pro bono, being a pro bono lawyer, um, it works. But the only thing I'd say, say if you work for Allens, who so I've got past students who are now in Allens and other firms, um, you do get rotated around. So you might have, say, Allens, who's got a strong pro bono presence, but you're not going to be guaranteed to be placed there. So I just would um, allude to that. But also just on a, a comment about the Melbourne Bar and Melbourne uh, law firms, they have a very strong pro bono uh, history in particularly refugee law. And at the moment, most, if not all, the firms, the major law firms in Melbourne have come together to try and help Afghan uh, refugees. So we've got a strong pro bono community here that I'm very proud of. And the other thing that I want to just pick up on is what Joseph said about litigation. And um, Monash has a number of uh, my colleagues in the law faculty who have an experience and teach mediation. So I would just flag that as well as litigation as such we have alternative dispute resolution that's something I did my honours thesis on in family law back back in the day um, and I would say that's another alternative career which is not public sector as such or public interest but it can be um, but you know can, you can do commercial mediation so you can get that litigation um, experience holistically but it's just not as um, aggressive if you like if, if you're concerned about that so being a mediator is actually I think quite a, a rewarding job and you can do that either in the public area or in um, in commercial law so I just want to touch on the issue of networking because not only is it one of the questions we're posed here but I struggle with the two. Again, I'm sort of first in the family. I grew up in a very small country town in a pub, um, which might explain a couple of things about me. But I also I struggled very much so as a student and in my early career with this networking. How do I network? What do I do? I didn't have those set um, frameworks because I didn't go to a you know a private school and so forth. So can we just talk to that? And um, I guess I'll start with with Joseph first, and then Tanya, Liam, and Fleur just to mix things up. So. Joseph, can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I think for me, probably the number one um, biggest help for me was um, uh, when I um, first started, I uh, nominated for the Law Institute, um, you know, Workplace Law Committee. Um, and, and that introduced me to... A lot of the big players in in my field, um, and it was you know tremendously uh, helpful for me. So, um, it, you know, it, so the Law Institute has all of these special sec uh, uh, special specialisation sections, um, and you can sign up and join, and then you can become a committee media, uh, member, and they meet monthly, and that was very good way to, as I say, you meet the big players and they get to know who you are and they all become 
wonderful resources. Um, nobody gets affronted when you say to them, uh, when you pick up the phone, ring them and say, I think you have great expertise, can you help me here? <laughs> um, uh, and sometimes we can talk ourselves out of that, uh, but you do yourself a big disservice because as soon as you do that, uh, I think um, you'll be very surprised um, at how quickly you gain a, a career-long friend. Um, and so just by doing, uh, making those connections, um, they've lasted me all the way through my career. So I think that was the biggest one. It was very easy. It was all set up. It was all there for me. Um, when I was at the, when I was in the union movement, what I found was they didn't have anything like that for legal officers or lawyers. Um, and I tried to get the ACTU to set something up for many years and it never happened. And I think that was a, a great shame because, um, you know, the, again, you know, there's a unique set of skills and it'd be nice to have a network for us. Um, but just uh, the best advice I give, um, see what networks are there, what, what, what's available, because they're going to exist. Get yourself in there, listen, spend a lot of time listening, more time listening than talking because, um, those around you, uh, obviously, you, you've got to be deferential and understand they know more than you do. And then never be afraid to uh, ask somebody about their area of expertise because uh, people love talking and um, they'll appreciate you for it. So that's the best advice I've got. That's great advice. Thank you, Joseph. Tanya, did you have any comments or recommendations for networking? Um I think your one of your biggest networks right now are your your peers, your fellow peers, and um, I think it's important to also build uh, genuine and authentic uh, connections. So um, I think there's this idea that we've got to um, it's like Pokemon. We've got to catch them all, put them in our pocket, um, add all the LinkedIn friends we've got, um, and this idea that the more numbers we have in an, in our network, the more successful we're going to be. Um, but what I've found, it's actually quality over quantity. Um, and it's about nourishing those, those connections you have, whether it's um, a lawyer at, a, um, at the firm that you're um, clerking at or at a CLC or um, whether it's your, your, your boss that you work as a barista for. It's, it's about having that authentic relationship and um, developing it. And I've, I found it surprising. I've, I have these mentors who I met um, 10, 15 years ago who I still talk to and still seek advice from. Um, and I think if we start changing our, um, our perspective about what our networks can, um, you know, not just do for us in, in gaining jobs, but how they can grow us as, as professionals and as people as well. Thank you, Tanya. Liam, what's your perspective on networking? Yeah, I like to think of networking as something a lot more natural than the sort of stilted ways in which I think many students experience it through those god-awful firm networking events that I hated as a student myself. And I think that most students get terrified at because you're chunked to this environment with probably 50, 100 people and it's like, good luck, go around and talk to people. Now, obviously in a pandemic, that changes quite dramatically. But even aside from that, I would really encourage everyone, similar to Tanya's advice, to sort of follow the quality path, but also follow the more natural path. To me, networking at its core is just being a good human being to other people and sort of building connections with people and, and that leading to colleagues, friendships, um, other connections that, that help both of you uh, throughout your career. So 
if you come across someone who you're inspired by or you're engaged by, say that to them and sort of just start build, building that relationship. If you read a paper, um, like a, a journal article, or you read a, a judgment with uh, a lawyer who's advocating for a party and you love the submissions, send off an email or a LinkedIn message saying that to them. I think like Joseph said, no one hates getting praise. <laughs> like I, I've had many sort of students say to me before they wanted to talk about something I'd written, but they weren't you know, sure if I'd really want to hear that. I promise you that is what I want to hear. I get more than enough emails like we talked about with Maria and I in the media from people who disagree that it's great to get communications from those who agree. But but also it's about sort of starting that connection in, in a sort of natural way. And I think just just building, building that up slowly but surely rather than trying to rush into, yeah, having 500 LinkedIn followers or whatever whatever quantum that you might think is the right amount, just sort of more naturally pursuing your interests through those different areas and people that you're drawn to. So they can be teachers, they can be colleagues, they can be people not in the legal profession, but in other areas who can give you good career advice. I mean, I got good career advice from other AFL scouts who had never even probably uttered the word law outside of... Um, perhaps some more negative experiences with the law. So it's, I think, just draw on everyone you come across and, 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 um, and think about who you are drawn to in terms of who you want to network with. Great advice. And Fleur, did you have any advice on networking? Yes. Um, so I agree with Liam and uh, Joseph to trust your instinct and reach out to people that um, you, inspire you or you're interested in. Um, and I would say, you know, eight out of 10 times they will reciprocate. Um, and sometimes they won't, but, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I just think that you, you need the courage to, to reach out to people. Uh, oddly, I've ignored LinkedIn until this year. Um, and I created a very strong profile of, of being, an you know, being an Indigenous uh, human rights lawyer and actually, it's been really great for me in terms of meeting people and reaching out to, to different people. So I do recommend LinkedIn. You can use it in um, creative ways. Doing talks <laughs> like this or um, talks on something that you're passionate about. Um, I've had many this year where people have reached out to me afterwards and it's been a really good mutual um, relationship um, from that. And then, obviously, I also completely agree with um, your peers along the way. They're the, they're the best confidants. <laughs> they're the best people to talk to um, if you have an issue or if you want advice. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, my closest friends are the friends I went to law school with um, still to this day. So, um, and also that I met along the way with associates and those kind of things. And you just collect people on your way along your way and, um, and, and then that makes for a really great um, life within me. Thanks very much, Fleur. So I've just got a couple of questions specifically for our individual speakers and then I'm going to open it up to Q&A. So firstly, Tanya, we mentioned and a few of us have mentioned being an associate to a judge. Can you just explain what sort of tasks you've had to complete as an associate to a judge and give the the, the attendees an insight into that? Yeah, so um, uh, I'm um, associate to um, the president here of the Court of Appeals. So um, each associate's role depends on the judge that you're working for. Um, my role involves um, assisting judge in preparing matters for court. 
um, as well as uh, talking to registry staff um, and case managing appeals that come through. Um, not only that, but I, I get to open court, I get to bang a gavel, wear a robe, um, which is a fun, the fun part of the job. And, and I think one of the best parts is that you get to, you're paid to sit in court and watch some of the best advocates um, appear before you and try and persuade three, um, in the Court of Appeal, there are three judges um, and try and persuade a bench to, to rule this decision or to rule this way. And you get the benefit of um, reading the material, reading the submissions, coming up with your own view and testing that in court. So your legal thinking skills over that period of time just, just grows um, exponentially. And um, I honestly, um, coming into this role, I felt so dumb. I felt like I didn't learn anything in law school. I was like, oh, I must have been asleep in law school because um, you just learn so much. And you see how um, legal practice, um, the practice of law, why it's called a practice, it's the doing of it. Um, and you see that in litigation, how um, lawyers, um, it's, it's all about um, the little things, the drafting, it's about negotiating with your um, opposing parties, talking to clients, getting their instructions. So seeing the law come alive like that, I think is, it's an invaluable experience. Um, and I would highly encourage um, anyone, um, even if you, you, I didn't think I could be an associate. I didn't have the top grades in um, university. Um, and I didn't apply straight away. I came back um, after a few years. I'm 30 this year. Um, so I think having a bit of life experience as well um, can, can really add to, um, add to that and bring something to your judge that perhaps a recent graduate may not be able to bring. So don't discount yourself just because you didn't get a GPA 7 or you know, you're not one of those high flying legal types. Um, Definitely, I think, apply because um, it, it is very specific to your judge and it is a very unique, it's a unique working relationship because you are working with this one person, but you get their mentoring, you get um, an incredible opportunity to be in this world, which many people don't. Um, and it just, it just gives you the confidence to, to start your career, um, I think. So, um, yeah, highly recommend it. Thank you, Tanya. And if I could just speak briefly to that, um, a lot of students focus, I guess, on the Supreme Court or the Federal Court or, or indeed the High Court. Uh, and I had a, a student a few years ago who, in, like, who did an associateship in the County Court, which she thoroughly enjoyed. And she then went on to work at the Special uh, Tribunal for Lebanon, again, which was in The Hague. There was a reason there. So, yeah, she was able to use that criminal uh, and civil mainly criminal litigation experience or knowledge to then to then uh, do something related so yeah and, and and in some respects the county court is a little bit more interesting because it's trial work rather than appellate work on questions of law um so yeah so that's what I wanted to say on that so I just have a question for Liam um, and just to preface it, again, we've been talking about doing legal work, but one of the things I do as a Castan Centre Deputy Director is parliamentary submissions, and indeed many of my colleagues do that as well. 
So as an academic, you can make a submission either to a UN um, report or more commonly to the Senate Legal and Constitutional Committee who are looking at a bill. Uh, similar things would apply at the state level as well. And um, or more informally, you can also lobby parliament, uh, parliamentarians, which is something, again, as an academic, you can feed into in relation to refugee law, and I've been involved in that. So when we're talking about policy advocacy, it's a little bit different from hard law, and you've got to bear in mind strategy, which parliamentarians you're going to focus on, and to be honest, um, who's got a weakness? At the moment, I'm uh, supervising some students about the humanitarian places for Afghanistan, and we're trying to get some sort of um, weakness. So are they weak on like the gender point? And we can use that to get them to support uh, places to Afghan women. So it's, it's non-law skills, but you're trying to get a legal um, outcome. So Liam, can you speak to your LGBTQI advocacy or anti-discrimination advocacy? please. Thanks. Happily. Thanks, Maria. Yeah. I mean, everything you just said I just makes me so happy because that's probably the favourite part of my job, apart from teaching, obviously. I have to say that because quite a few of my students are in the participant list. <laughs> um, no, I genuinely love it. So yeah. I, I love doing law reform work. And I think I think one of the reasons perhaps I didn't enjoy my associateship as much as almost everyone else I know, and I mean, Tanya's experience, I think is by far the majority experience when it comes to associateships. I think the reason for me is that I realised at the time that I wasn't as interested in those individual disputes. I was interested in big picture reform and how to change the ways in which we, we regulate societal behaviours and societal norms. And discrimination law is an obvious area for that. It sort of regulates norms around what's right and what's wrong when it comes to how you treat other people and, and the, the grounds on which you use to treat other people. And I suppose for me coming out of that, it, it made me realise I wanted to do more of that legislative reform work, especially after marriage equality, after that slog. So for the last four or five years, I've been part of a group called the Australian Discrimination Law Experts Group, which is about 20, 25 academics who have expertise in discrimination law all around Australia. And we make group submissions on pretty much every discrimination law reform inquiry there is, which you might think is not many, but I don't think there's any area of law that is going through as many law reform inquiries as discrimination law. I think we did eight submissions last year in Australia. I think we've done seven this year. Um, we have consultation meetings with human rights commissions, with parliamentary committees, with executive bodies like departments of attorneys general, a whole range of different, different bodies and areas. And in addition to that, I do what Maria was talking about, which is um, more, more sort of one-on-one -on -one conversations with parliamentarians or with particular individuals who are involved in these processes, be them advisors, you know, parliamentary committee members or whoever else might be involved. And there is a lot of strategy to it, which is why I love it. There's a lot of problem solving, there's a lot of tinkering, there's a lot of thinking about how does this play out in a public realm? How does this play out in a media realm? How does this play out in a political realm? How do we make the law explainable and understandable to people? And so much of what you do in those submissions is exactly that point. You're drawing from quite technical expertise, doctrinal expertise that you've built up in law school and, and many other areas. And then you're trying to make it understandable to people who don't understand the law as well as you do. The reality is that as much as politicians make the law, they definitely don't understand the law as much as um, those who research it or practice it um, or on courts or associates or in any other role really in, in the profession. So I think to me, sort of tinkering with that has been one of the most fascinating things I've done and then using that to, to achieve better aims and goals for LGBTIQ people and thinking about how we can 
better protect them in discrimination laws and how that gets through different parliaments in different areas. So Victoria, it's a lot easier to get that through than for instance, New South Wales right now and how you adjust your aims and your strategies according to that. So I'd also encourage all of you to think about the legislative side of things, be it through those public service roles, be it through policy advisor roles at like Premier and Cabinet and Prime Minister and Cabinets, um, you know, legal advice in those areas or AGs or, um, yeah, Solicitor General departments, those sort of things as well, because there's so much work going on in the legislative space as well. Um, so much good work and important work that is often, you know, high profile and, in, and on the public agenda. So I strongly encourage people to get involved in that if they can. Fantastic. And, and that, students, why sometimes we encourage you to be concise in your writing because, you know, the, the general understanding is that say you do a parliamentary submission of 15 pages, which you might do for a refugee bill, um, you know, the understanding is the, the committee member will only look at the first page. So you've got to do an executive summary, which very clearly and concisely sets out on the first page what it's all about and get to the point because they're time poor people. Um, yeah, I just wanted to then move to a slightly different issue um, and ask Fleur, how do you believe your Samoan heritage and unique cultural experiences has influenced your perspective of law and your um, career choices? Thank you. Um, I guess in the job that I'm doing now, um, uh, there were two kind of um, changes I brought to the Pacific program, so the international program. And the first was moving away from a developmentalist um, idea of capacity building. So Australian lawyers thought that, that um, they would go to the Pacific and build up uh, capacity of lawyers there. Um, in some sense, that's a, something that um, is needed, but it's based on a very hierarchical colonial relationship and in that relationship, you don't actually see what's there. And so um, an example is just them saying, here's some great environmental laws from Australia, which actually don't work here. Um, <laughs> go ahead and implement them there and then not even realise that there's all these customary law systems, which are already doing a really good job of protecting um, the environment and you have to do things differently. So in terms of that kind of contextual approach, um, I've brought that and then also recognising that customary law is a form of environmental law. Um, so, yeah, so that's definitely helped. In terms of my choices, I think I definitely got a sense of um, um, justice from being Samoan growing up on the Sunshine Coast. Like, I grew up in New Zealand when I was on the Sunshine Coast and, yeah, I found it a, a quite a... A racist place when I was growing up there which was the the 90s um and you know I was I guess because I was Samoan I just kind of recognized the settler colonial context straight away without anyone even needing to talk to me about it I already knew um that this dynamic was there and I think that really did um contribute my choices of going to law school and then it was just actually lucky that I went to Macquarie Uni in the 90s which um was a very radical, um, unorthodox approach of teaching law where for property, for example, we read a lot of Marx and anti-colonial um, material before we actually got to the doctrine so that we could place the doctrine within a historical context. Um, and I, I feel like that 
I'm, I'm a very strong believer in um, uh, interdisciplinary legal um, approach to education. And I think it's realer. I think um, the way that law is taught is very blind to its societal context. Um, and I think that's actually about power and perpetuating power. And I think that um, law schools need to be better at, at teaching um, history and context and power. Absolutely. Um, so I just want to move to the Q&A and there is a, a good question about um, could you talk about whether what you perceive was your biggest career mistake and how you pivoted after that um, or alternatively your biggest career break? So I think a couple of us have talked to not a career mistake but something that they experienced and then how did they pivot after that? So yeah, alternatively, um, what is your big career break? So I might start with Joseph, thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, biggest career mistake. Um, look, I, I suppose for me, it, it was that thing where I had a very clear focus when I was studying about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve. Um, but then, um, you know, wanting to follow those steps, uh, found myself in a commercial firm and I did, um, you know, you get your head turned a bit, as I was talking before, you can lose your focus. Um, so I suppose that was the issue for me when I, 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 uh, I probably, um, I'm trying to put it, the best way to put it is I probably lost a sense of the authenticity that was very important to me. I always uh, went into the law with this sense that it's something I do, it's not who I am. There's a lot of parts and, and, and I like it as a tool, something that I can use in trying to achieve something that I want to do. Um, and I suppose I turned into one of those dickheads that you <laughs> that you always uh um you know uh were wary of uh when you were studying and i suppose so that that was it for me um i think it didn't last very long and then when i realized that i was perhaps you know losing sight of things the important thing for me we've talked about it before you know the important things are your peers and you spend time with them and i and i mentioned before that um I picked up the phone and I spoke to somebody who I studied with um, and I was friends with and said, you know, we've got to get the, the train back on the, on the tracks. And, uh, uh, and I think that was it in terms of career stuff, you know, uh, I, I don't think you really make too many mistakes in law. I think that even if you do, they're great life lessons. I mean, um, we, we've all done that thing. Oh, I've got a good story on that. Um, I, um, after I left the commercial law firm and I went to the union, I found myself in a matter at VCash, opposed to the partner, the employment law partner of the firm. And uh, I'd never uh, been at VCAP before on a matter. Um, so before the member came in, I said to the partner, um, and we'd, we'd worked very closely, we, we got along very well, and I said to him, um, I don't know what to call you know, whoever's coming out, what do I say? And he said, oh, you, you say your worship. And I was like, oh, thanks. So the tribunal member came out and I stood up and said, your worship, I'd like to uh, announce my appearance. <laughs> she said, 
what's this worship? What's your worship on about? So, um, and, and I looked across and he was very amused. So I was, I was completely set up by him. So um, probably the, the only lesson I got out of that was, you know, prepare, prepare, prepare for everything. And uh, don't always trust your opponent, even if you've known them for years. So um, that's the best anecdote I've got on that. Thank you. Yes, great. Tanya, would you like to, to speak to that question? Um, I feel like my career's just kind of starting, so it's a bit hard to um, be vulnerable like that. But maybe um, reflecting on law school and perhaps what Flo was saying, I found, um, I, I think I've mentioned I didn't do very well in terms of grades, and it was because of the fact that law was taught in such a white uh, patriarchal way. I went to a G8 Sandstone University and I found it very hard to uh, connect with with my law studies. Um, And it was only until my last semester that um, I took some uh, critical Indigenous studies. I took some critical race studies, which actually um, just I just really enjoyed and it finally all made sense. So I think um, I think the advice from that would be maybe don't do what you think you have to do. Like I I did an arts program and I did public policy and economics because I thought, oh, I'll become smart and I could go into government and it all looks smart, but maybe I should have done um, art history or indigenous studies or just something that I was actually maybe interested in. Um, So yeah, follow your passion, follow your curiosity. Don't don't let the... um, dominant voices of you know this is what this will look good on your cv this will look good on a clerkship kind of dominate your decisions um while you're going through university so yeah listen to your to your intuition and yourself thanks tenure and while i have you could i just um ask you to address the question because you are uh, an associate at the moment we've got a couple of questions about the minutiae, I guess, more of the procedure of applying for an associateship. So, um, for example, you know, how do you apply? Do you need to be an HD student? Uh, so any tips, I guess, generally for students applying for an associateship? Yeah, um, so I think it depends on the, the court that you're applying to. I'm in Queensland. Um, it's a bit different here from um, where Victoria is and um we have district courts, which I think are your county court equivalents as well. And we also have magistrate courts. Um, so there's associateships, which are defined um, one year, maybe two year role, but also there's tip staff as well in the magistrate court. And there's also bailiffs. So um, really um, uh, look at the court website, see what their, um, if they have an associateship or tip staff application process. Um, um, usually it involves a, um, it might involve a form, but it usually involves a cover letter that's addressed to the specific individual judge. Um, my tips would be to try and find out as much as you can about the judges that you are interested in applying for and why you want to apply for those judges. Is it because they've done work on um, environmental law cases that you really admire? Um, my judge worked on the WIC case, which was incredible, which he, for the WIC people. So that was something that I was really drawn to. Um, so try and find a, um, a professional personal connection, if that makes sense. Why do you want to work for this particular person? And what do you think this particular person can teach you? And what can you bring to the role that's unique as well? Um, so um, 
put that in your cover letter um, and um, I think a resume as well. Um, don't discount your non-legal work. I had a lot of non-legal work, um, as, but that, that can really set you apart from the cookie cutter applicants um, that do come through. So um, yeah, tailor it to your judge. Um, you don't need a high GPA. Um, if you've got other experience and other achievements, highlight that. Um, because you've got to spend a whole year at least with this one other person, um, the judge really is looking for someone they can get along with, someone whose personality that they, you know, they, that they want to talk to after a long day in court. Oh, wasn't that barrister terrible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's as much about the personal connection as well as um, um, uh, the professional kind of match. Uh, thank you, Tanya. That was really useful. And um, just if I could add a couple of things in terms of uh, students who are finding out about these opportunities, yeah, the Victorian Government website, make sure you're looking at that every week. Also follow some good people on Twitter, like my colleague, Melissa Castan. She often retweets um, job adverts. And my, I, I'm not a great tweeter, but um, uh, so, so you're uh, Monash or if you're outside of Monash, your own academics. Um, if they're good tweeters, and then um, also LinkedIn um, is also good for, for people forwarding that information. Um, so uh, Liam and Fleur, did you have any uh, additional contributions to make? Um, I just think with the associate role, don't let yourself be defined by your grades at university. Um, I was similar to Tanya. My grades were all over the place. I was either top of the class or I <laughs> had a C. Um, and I just actually ended up uh, convincing the judge to give me a go. Um, and that go was a one-month contract, three days a week, and that was it. Um, and so when someone gives you an opportunity, you've got to take it. <laughs> and uh, they went away for a week. I had a task, um, a research task. I got up at 4am every morning and I had a 10,000 word paper back for them when they got back and then they ripped up the contract and gave me a full-time job. So yeah, so I just think it's just be tenacious, go for what um, you want and yeah, with the grades just, you know, law can be boring but actually you can grow into it. You can, you can actually discover its beauty later in life. Um, through, through practice. Um, and I think what Tanya was saying as well, just, yeah, be guided by um, your passion and don't be, don't be afraid. Yeah, and, and I might do that as well, Maria. Um, in terms yeah, of applications for associateships, I'd really echo what Tanya and Fleur have said in that um, you should be yourself and be original. I think almost everyone goes for associateships and, you know, you might want to question whether it's the right thing for you as well. I'd always sort of advise against just sort of follow the sheep model if, you know, it's not the right thing for you, but because a lot of people go for them, a lot of the applications look the same. So you want something that sort of makes your application stand out or shows who you are. My, what I found with the uh, interviews was that if you get to an interview with a judge, you're obviously someone they want to work with on a sort of academic or legal level. And by that stage, the only thing they really care about is how you connect to them as a human and your personality or interests and sort of how you work with them on a day-to-day -day basis. That was my sense in, in the interviews I had for my associateship. So I think it's important to show who you are and your interests and your passions and 
it's also just important generally in law school not to suppress them in favor of yeah a clerkship every every single time you get the opportunity to actually continue your passions and your desires I had a 20 minute interview with my, the judge that I ended up working for. I reckon 15 minutes of that was talking about my AFL scouting work um, because he was a West Coast fan and was lording it over me because West Coast kept beating Port at the time. And, and not everyone is gonna have that experience obviously, but everyone has their own interests and values and experiences and everyone has something unique about them. So one, follow those unique areas and passions through your law degree and two, make sure you bring it out in those applications, not just associateships, but for everything you're going for um, towards the end of your law degree. So thank you everyone. We'll bring it to a close in a moment. I just have two or three minutes and we've got a question about what are the first steps to be involved in social justice? So. If, if someone's just in their early years of law school, what um, what advice would you give them? Um, perhaps starting with Fleur and Tanya, and then if we have time, Joseph and, and Liam. So Fleur and Tanya. Um, I guess uh, this is contrary advice in terms of not working for free, but uh, uh, I think there are opportunities to volunteer in um, community legal centres and they don't pay you because um, they don't want to pay you. It's actually, it's the funding model that we, we live in. Um, but you can get access to, to seeing some really interesting cases and be involved in really interesting research. And I think it's worth it just for that. Um, but the extent to you do it, um, don't, you know, be exploited. I totally agree. My politics are with you, Tanya, on this um, on this level, and you, Joseph, as well. Um, but I think in terms of getting a taste for it um, and knowing whether you want to do social justice or not, that I do think that that's a good way of um, of, of finding out um, and and working in an area that you um, enjoy. Um. I, I would add, I, I remember um, I was a huge climateer um, when I started uni. I wanted to do environmental law, be a climate change lawyer, um, and there wasn't any environmental group at my university, so I set one up. Um, so even thinking about being part of activist organisations, if that means, you know, volunteering or being part of a group and working on a campaign, because you will build skills from there about thinking strategically, um, thinking about systems um, that you don't get in the classroom that you can then apply to your public interest work later on. Um, so yes, start up your own things if, if there's nothing around you. Thank you so much. I'm just going to give a, a final word to Liam and then I'll close the session. And sorry to all the, the people that we didn't get quite you know, to every Q&A, we did try. Uh, but Liam, closing thoughts. Thanks, Maria. Yeah, just on the social justice point, I think the, the main advice I'd give is, first of all, figure out what you care about and what sort of justice you're striving for. Secondly, find someone who works in that space or volunteers in that space. That could be LinkedIn, Twitter, that can be your teachers, that could just be someone you see in media. And thirdly, reach out to them and get a coffee. I think for me, when I first started in LGBTIQ rights, 
It was sim simple as grabbing a coffee with someone who was working on the marriage equality campaign in Perth. Um, and, and most of you are in Melbourne and are lucky enough to be in the city that probably has the, the, the most social justice focus of any of the cities in Australia. There are plenty of people and groups for you to reach out to. And, you know, if, if it's my area, if it's LGBTIQ rights, you can just email me after this talk and we can talk about it, obviously. But find someone who's in the same area and have a coffee with them and they'll, they'll guide you on the right path. Thank you so much. So I'd like to formally thank Tanya Sinya, Joseph Kelly, Fleur Ramsey and Liam Elphick for a fascinating talk and for, um, you know, carving out some time in, in a busy day to talk to us and the students. So I'd like to now formally close. I don't know, Benari, did you want to say anything um, in closing? Thank you. That was it. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, we hope you enjoyed it and sorry we couldn't get around to all the questions, but hopefully next year you can join us again and we can get to your questions then. Thank you, everyone. Good evening.